Good morning, friends. Good morning. Isn't it a beautiful fall morning? Thank you for being here. I'm Althea Brooks. I'm Senior Director in Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement. It's my pleasure to, to welcome all of you. And we partner with the Alumni Association in bringing you More Than the Score each morning. How many of you, it's your very first time attending More Than the Score? Hands up. So many of you have been here before, I guess. Who's going to the game? All right, wahoo-wah. That means we're going to win today. Excellent, excellent. Bring home the win, and we'll, we'll be bowl eligible, right? We're excited about that. All right, so let's get started. Um, we've got a great talk. Um, we have Risa Goyuboff. She's dean in the School of Law. It's her very first time speaking at more than score. What do we do for her? I love the fans that know what to do. I love it. I love it. I love it. We have special guests in the audience. Not that all of you aren't special, but we have some really, really special guests that's learning from us uh, this week uh, from the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. Um, we have Tom, Tom Clark, Thomas Clark. He's a colonel, former colonel. And we also have Ted Finning. He's also from the Citadel. And they're putting together a program very similar to our More Than the Score. So they're learning from us today. So welcome, guys. We're glad that you're here. And they're sitting with very special friends of ours from uh, Virginia uh, Commonwealth University, Doug Knapp and Pat and his lovely wife, and George Casper. So thank you guys for um, welcoming our guests and telling them all about More Than the Score. Uh, before we begin, a few things. Your phones, you know what to do with your phones. Go ahead and silence the ringer, turn it down a bit, um, and enjoy the talk. We also passed out those great orange feedback cards. If you'll take a moment and give us your comment, your feedback, we'd love to have those so that we can plan next year. We're already thinking about next year more than the score season, so thank you for that. Uh, let's see, what else? We have two books we'll be uh, drawing at the end. Uh, Dean Goyuboff was so uh, wonderful. She donated two books uh, for, for the drawing today. One's on the history of the law school, which is a fantastic book. I started flipping through it, and I almost kept it. I really did. Um, and then Dean Goyuboff's uh, most recent book, Vagrant Nation. So I'm, I have the pleasure of introducing her this morning. Normally there's someone else up here introducing our speaker, but I have that pleasure. Um, and I've worked with uh, Risa Goyeboff uh, a little bit. She's done some other talks for us. So, so I could tell you, she's, she's a rock star. Uh, so Risa Goyeboff is the 12th and the first female, first female dean at the University School of Law. She is a nationally and renowned legal historian whose scholarship and teaching focuses on American constitutional and civil rights law, and especially their historical development in the 20th century. Dean Goyuboff is an award-winning author. She's authored two books, The Lost Promise of Civil Rights and Vagrant Nation. She's also co-edited co a civil rights story. Uh, I'm sorry, she co-edited uh, Civil Rights Stories. So multiple stories. And she has numerous other short, short story, uh, short works. Dean Goyeboff uh, has been quoted and cited by the New York Times, Times, The Atlantic, and many other publications. She's appeared on PBS documentaries and other popular radio broadcasts. Her commentaries frequently appear in Slate. 
Dean Goyebach has received a number of teaching awards, the law school's Carl McFarlane Award for Excellence in Faculty Scholarship, the University of Virginia's All-University Teaching Award, and the Office of Engagement's Above and Beyond Faculty Speaker Award. She was named a distinguished lecturer by the Organization of American Historians. I can say, I, I tell you, she's a rock star. Dean Goyabov is also affiliated with, as a scholar at the Miller Center. Any of you have attended talks at the Miller Center? They're a great organization here at UVA. Uh, she's a faculty affiliate at the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American and, American and African Studies. And from 2011 to 2016, she directed the university's JD, MA, and history program. Dean Goyabov has served as a visiting professor in, at Columbia, at Chicago, and at New York University's Law School. Prior to joining the law school here at um, UVA in 2002, the dean clerked for the U.S. Court of Appeals and for the Second Circuit uh, Appeals as well, <laughs> and for Justice Stephen Breyer of the U.S. Supreme Court. She's also served as a Fulbright Scholar to South Africa. Dean Goyabuff will also be participating on a panel later, uh, I'm sorry, in early November, November 1st. We had some flyers on your table. She'll be moderating that. We hope that you will join us on November 1st for that great reception and uh, panel discussion. So please help me welcome Dean Goyabuff as our speaker for more than the score this morning. We're so glad to have you as well. Good morning. Thank you to uh, Lifetime Learning for inviting me, and especially to Althea. It is always a pleasure to work with Althea, and she gives me awards that uh, she thinks I don't know. Uh, she thinks uh, she thinks that 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 I need awards when she's doing me all this. I mean, she, it, I, I don't. I, it, it seems wrong. I should be giving her awards. Uh, so thank you all for coming today. Uh, it's homecoming, and there's a football game, and it's beautiful outside, uh, and it is a joyous day. And you all have chosen to be here for the next hour talking about very serious matters. And uh, I'm glad to see you here, and glad that we're going to have this conversation. I do. I want to say one thing before I start. Althea mentioned that I, I was supposed to have been uh, doing this talk on Marbury versus Madison. It was going to be a mock law class, actually, on judicial review uh, in the United States. And I heard that some of you were disappointed uh, that I'm not doing that. So I told her I would come back. Uh, if those, this goes well, I'll come back and do that another time. So, okay. Um, you should wait to decide whether you want that after I've done, after you've seen me in action. Uh, so the title for today is August 11th and 12th, 2017, Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, that phrase, that question, where do we go from here, might be familiar to some of you. Uh, it was the name of a speech and a book that Martin Luther King wrote in 1967. He holed up in Jamaica away from the hustle and bustle of the civil rights movement, and he was trying to find some perspective on that movement, which had already accomplished so much, and in 1967, he wasn't quite sure where it was going. And it's such a great question, 
Because it's not just where do we go, it's where do we go from here. So here presumes we've already been somewhere else and we've come to here, but we're still moving. So it's a question in motion. It's a question that happens after we've already started, but before we are finished and that we have new choices to make about how we're going to get from here to the next step in our journey. I'm going to answer that question from my own particular vantage point. A week after August 11th and 12th, President Sullivan asked me to chair the university-wide dean's working group to help the university respond to the white supremacists and neo-Nazis who did violence to our city and our grounds in the name of hate and intolerance. I had to say yes. I couldn't imagine anything more important to do at that moment or at this one. Charlottesville is my home. It has been my intellectual and professional community for the past 15 years. So I have a real personal stake in this endeavor. It's also my life's work. I am a civil rights historian and legal scholar and a constitutional law scholar and teacher and a dean of the law school. So my answers to this question come from those roles. I'm sure other people would answer this question in other ways. So I'll offer you four perspectives this morning. Two are institutional and two are academic. The institutional roles are as chair of the university-wide working group. What is the university's response? What has it been? What will it continue to be? As a law school dean, how do I think about my own mission for my school, for the school I lead in light of these events? And then the two academic perspectives. First, as a constitutional law scholar and teacher, what legal issues do arise after the events of August 11th and 12th? And finally, and most briefly, as a civil rights historian, how do we think about this moment in a longer historical perspective? I will say uh, that for some of these perspectives, I have more questions than answers. We are only two months after the events happened. Uh, and as any good lawyer and good teacher would, I want to ask questions rather than answer them. But we're beginning to answer them. Uh, but we are very much moving from here. It is not the end. It is only the beginning. So part one, as chair of the university's working group, where do we go from here? Over the last two months, like many of you, I'm sure, who all are here because you are connected to the University of Virginia or Charlottesville in some way, I experienced a cascade of different emotions, heartbreak, revulsion, sadness, grief, fear, anger, vulnerability. But over the last month or so, one particular feeling has really come to the fore. And that feeling is a feeling of resolve. Resolve to ensure that the events of August 11th and 12th are not tragic in two senses. First, that they occurred. And second, that we don't learn from them. So there is resolve, and it's not only on my part, but I see it uh, with almost everyone I speak to, that we can and must make something meaningful out of something tragic. That we have to see these events as a catalyst to reignite progress, to make the world, our city, our university a more just, equal, and inclusive place. And I see President Sullivan's creation of the Dean's Working Group as committing the university to that project. We've taken the charge really seriously. We have met regularly. Uh, we have been discussing and planning. We've been reaching out to members of the university community, meeting one-on-one -on -one with students, faculty, and staff, as well as in larger groups with the faculty senate, the staff senate, diversity officers, student leaders, student groups. Uh, we've created a website that I refer you to uh, that is a resource and an information hub. It has all the events going on around the university, uh, as well as various documents and updates from our group. 
I view our charge as having three parts to it. The first part, and the one that has occupied our time uh, most uh, over the last two months, is ensuring the future safety and security of the university community. This was our most immediate and urgent response. Uh, and in the days after August 11th and 12th, the university expanded the police and ambassador presence and coverage across grounds, increased coordination between the various schools and units of the university and the university police department, hired a highly, a highly respected higher education safety and security consulting firm to conduct a comprehensive review of our safety and security infrastructure policies and tools. More recently, uh, we published a timeline and information about uh, the events here on August 11th. And most significantly, uh, we issued a report identifying what we saw as the most important lessons to be learned from August 11th and how the university can make improvements to the future, in particular, thinking about necessary policy changes. So there were three policy changes that we recommended. I'm happy to say the university, with the Board of Visitors' approval, uh, has already adopted two of the most important. The first one uh, has to do with the university's open flame policy. So on August 11th, when the white supremacists came to grounds bearing torches, we had a policy that required approval uh, from the Office of uh, Health, Environmental Health and Safety for open flames on grounds. But there was no process by which the Office of Environmental Health and Safety provided information about approvals to the university police department. And the university police department was not specifically authorized to enforce those approvals. That has been changed. It is now the case that any approvals that are given will be communicated to the university police department. And the university police department is specifically authorized to enforce those rules. Uh, and so the, the, the Board of Visitors has uh, approved that policy. Uh, in addition, the lawn, the academical village, has been designated a facility under the university's guidelines, which allows the university to prohibit weapons uh, on the lawn. The third policy uh, recommendation that we made is still in progress and moving forward, and that's because it's, I think, more complicated. It's consideration of whether the university should put in place more robust time, place, and manner policies that would simultaneously protect robust, nonviolent free speech on grounds, and also better equip our law enforcement officers with the tools they need to respond to violence and threats. Uh, this is something that the law faculty, uh, I have asked the law faculty to look into. They are working with the general counsel's office and the university about what those policies should look like. As I think we all know, true engagement and dialogue, and I'll talk about this more in a little bit, uh, are at the core of what it means to be a university. And freedom of expression requires concerted effort. It requires active support. And we all have to recommit to that. Uh, and at the same time, we have to make sure that we have appropriate tools uh, to respond when what we are faced with is not speech, uh, but something beyond speech. So as I said, when I get to my academic part as opposed to the institutional part, I'll talk more about what I see as the implications for speech. But right now, uh, the university is in the process of developing policies that can simultaneously balance uh, the need for free speech and the need for uh, protection of our community and, um, and our grounds. So the first part of our charge, safety and security, that's what we've mostly been working on thus far. The second part of our charge is to look inward, is to lead by example our culture and our practice of introspection and self-examination about the university's own climate, culture, and environment. 
These events remind us that despite the university's longstanding, ongoing, and deeply sincere commitment to diversity, humanity, equality, mutual respect, and dialogue across difference, not everyone in our community feels equally welcome here or feels an equal sense of belonging and ownership. And we want to ensure that each and every person feels equal certainty that they are entitled to be here and that each and every one of them helps make us, each and every one of you, helps make us who we are. So as much as it's a university's place to challenge our students, to challenge our faculty and staff intellectually, we also want to make sure to nourish them personally so that this is an environment in which they can be challenged intellectually. And being our best selves and living our value is not a resolution that we make at one day at one time. It's a resolution we have to commit to every day. And in a world that changes in fits and starts, I see this moment as one of those starts. So the working group has been hearing from members of our community about how to do that. We will be held, uh, uh, issuing a climate survey so that we can hear more from our community about how they feel, and we will begin turning to those questions and their answers. There's already been an enormous outpouring of programmatic response to these kinds of questions of our climate, our culture, and our, our environment. This is a grassroots outpouring from students, from faculty, from staff. If you go to our website, you will see all of the programming that has been happening, all of the conversations, the town halls, the roundtable discussions, uh, which are all uh, in, uh, in aspiration to uh, this goal of making sure that everyone feels heard uh, and feels a part of this community. But that is still at the beginning. And then the third and final part of our charge uh, is to think not only about how we live our values, but how we prosecute our mission. So this moment calls us to lead as well by putting our resources, our considerable scholarly and pedagogical resources, our talents, our expertise, toward better understanding of the events of August 11th and August 12th, their larger implications, how they are situated in our national life and our society. We do that by making ourselves better scholars and better teachers and by surrounding the many different issues that were raised by those events. Issues of race, religion, ethnicity and nationality, issues of gender and sexuality, of pluralism and tolerance, of difference and ability, of politics and civic engagement, of social justice and economic opportunity, of speech and violence. I could go on, but I'll stop there. That's enough things. Uh, there is a reason why the events in Charlottesville became national and global news and why people around the world were preoccupied by this little town that they had mostly never heard of before. And it's because these events provided stark evidence of deep and really enduring fault lines in our nation and in our society, fault lines that require, in my view, an urgent response. These are not questions that are new to this university. Our faculty and our students have been studying, teaching, and learning about them for decades, but now there is more to do and new questions that we have to ask, and the working group will be thinking about recommendations for long-term institutional investments into scholarship and teaching along these lines. Many of these questions, many of the investments, many of the questions that are raised here are, in my view, legal ones, and they're properly ones that are teed up for lawyers to answer. 
That might not be what you see, it might not be what everyone sees, but I am a law school dean uh, and trained as a lawyer. You know the old saying, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when I see a problem, I want to ask, what does this call for lawyers to do? Okay, so institutional answer number one, the dean's working group. Institutional answer number two uh, is my vantage point as a law school dean. Uh, so I want to take a moment to talk to you why I see lawyers as important to this response, and not just to this response, but more globally to society. So my scholarship, the book's over here that I'm happy to sign for you afterwards if you like. Um, my scholarship for the last 20 years has emphasized the power and importance of lawyers to society. Uh, I've written these two books along these lines. The first book is about civil rights in the 1940s. And the argument is really that by the time Brown versus Board of Education gets to the Supreme Court in 1954, the lawyers have already made most of the important decisions about what constitutional civil rights would look like and whether, uh, uh, when, and if they were protected. That's not to say the court was not important. Obviously, it was. Uh, and it was most important to, in deciding whether civil rights would be protected. But the contours of those rights had already been determined, in large part, by the clients and their lawyers. The second book is about civil rights, civil liberties, and policing in the 1960s. And in that book, I detail how it was only after lawyers recognized constitutional problems that had long been invisible in policing, and they articulated why those were problems that courts, that legislatures, that the public came to agree and see those as problems. And lawyers were the key actors in identifying and articulating how those problems were legal problems. So the lesson of both books is the importance of lawyers. Lawyers are the key figures in the creation and maintenance of law and the rule of law. They are translators, mediators, and gatekeepers between the harms experienced by everyday people in the world and the working of changes in the law. And I'll tell you, I came to these conclusions long before I took the helm of an institution that trained lawyers, right? I was a law professor, but I was not yet a dean. I've been dean for about uh, a year and a few months. Uh, so now that I'm at the helm, I think a lot about what lessons I can take from my scholarship for my institutional role and for thinking about what we do in law schools today and how we educate the, law, the lawyers of the future. I see these lessons of having particular urgency and application in the wake of August 11th and 12th. So there are three. You'll notice threes are a big thing for me. First, the law is not a constant, external, foreign thing that exists in some vacuum out there. The law is made, it is not found, and it is made by lawyers who, in representing clients, create the legal rules that will govern not just their particular cases, uh, but future cases and litigants as well. And that means that lawyers have obligations not only to their private clients, but also to the public. This is what it means to be a learned profession, which is what the law is. The law is one of the three original learned professions uh, from medieval society, with divinity and medicine being the other two. A learned profession is not just a job. It is not just about personal uh, private gain or personal glory. It is about obligations to uphold the rule of law, to promote the public good, to advance justice. And those entrusted with the knowledge and license and monopoly to practice law 
hold that law and that power in a public trust to do public good and fulfill public obligations. And in my view, what our job is in law schools is to inculcate that sense of ownership and power in our students to make them understand that they are not passive recipients of the law, but active participants in the legal pro process and makers of its results. Second, the law is not just a learned profession, but a powerful one and is a powerful tool in a society that adheres to the rule of law. The law unlocks doors and enforces contracts. It puts people in prison and gets them out again. It allows for treaties and it ends wars. It merges companies or allows them to go bankrupt. When you add together the public trust with the power, it means that lawyers are powerful and empowered gatekeepers of a malleable tool which means that they have ethical obligations toward it and the larger community. So that brings me to three. This is something that every law student and every lawyer must know. This orientation toward law as a public trust and one's own power and responsibility in holding that trust. That truth endows law schools with our responsibility to provide all of our students not only with opportunities to learn legal doctrine, but also to learn leadership, integrity, conscience, and the value and obligations of service. So the obligation of a lawyer to ask at any moment, what can I, as a lawyer, do now? What should I, as a lawyer, do now? What does this moment call for? Now, I'm sure many of you have your own conceptions of lawyers. Uh, they are less lofty, and they probably come more in the form of jokes. I have spent a long time trying to find lawyer jokes that are positive uh, and not negative. It's not that easy, uh, and most of them aren't that funny when you get down to it, but uh, I have found one. Uh, <laughs> But you can see how my conception of the lawyer, which I truly believe, I, I, I always joke that I really love lawyers, and uh, my husband, also a lawyer, says, of course you do. Uh, uh, but you can see how that conviction would lead me uh, to believe that we have to think anew about uh, the role of lawyers in uh, the wake of August 11th and August 12th. When you witness at close hand those who would choose violence and intimidation over dialogue and persuasion, you get renewed clarity about the critical importance of a profession dedicated to dialogue and persuasion, and therefore the core mission of the school I lead, to educate exceptional lawyers with judgment, integrity, conscience, and a sense of responsibility. I'm more convinced than that, of that than ever, and it is very clear to me, watching my students, faculty, and staff over the last two months, that is clear to them, too, that they are galvanized by these events and that our students will be the next generation of lawyers who will promote justice, equality, and the rule of law. In the short term, there are several questions that I think lawyers should be thinking about, and here, I move into my more academic role. So my two institutional responses as chair of the dean's working group uh, and as dean of the law school, now I'm moving into the more academic or intellectual responses. So part three, as a constitutional and legal scholar, I want to offer up three sets of legal questions that I see emerging from the events of August 11th and August 12th and the beginnings of some answers, though clearly not the end. And I want to premise them all with a caveat so that I won't be misunderstood. And I've said this once before, but I'll say it again. Uh, the First Amendment is of fundamental importance, and we must continue to protect free speech. Much of what we saw in Charlottesville on August 11th and 12th was not speech. It was violence cloaked under the premise of speech. 
So I want to think about the relationships between speech and violence, but I want to make sure that we don't mistakenly protect violence that presents itself in the guise of free speech. So my first question, how should we think about the First Amendment and the Second Amendment? The First Amendment is the one that uh, protects free speech, and the Second Amendment is the one that protects a right to bear arms. Our constitutional free speech doctrine has been in existence for almost a century now. There are always questions, there are always confusions, but we know the basic contours of the kind of speech we're talking about. In a public forum, one must allow for free speech. One is constitutionally allowed to have what are called time, place, and manner regulations, so long as they are content neutral, so long as they are about not having amplified sound at midnight. That seems fair, and not about this group gets to have a, a platform and that group does not. So our speech protections are fairly stable if still always have open questions. On the other hand, the constitutional protection of the individual right to bear arms for self-defense is less than a decade old. The Second Amendment was part of the Bill of Rights. It has been on the books uh, since uh, 1789. Uh, and yet, it did not mean the same thing always. Our Constitution has never meant the same thing always. It, it is always a process of interpretation and uh, elucidation. But it wasn't until nine years ago that the Supreme Court announced an individual constitutionally protected right to bear arms. That is a baby, maybe a toddler, in jurisprudential terms. Legal doctrine gets elaborated very, very slowly. If you've ever been on a tour of the Supreme Court, you'll notice that there are turtles built into the, uh, uh, the architecture of the court. Uh, and there used to be, I didn't see them the last time I went to the gift shop, but maybe they'll be there the next time. I have mugs in my house that I bought at the Supreme Court gift shop with turtles on them that say slow and steady. The process of justice is slow and steady. Nine years is not a long time to think about what does the right to bear arms, how does the right to bear arms interact with the right of free speech? Does the right to bear arms mean that arms cannot be prohibited as a matter of time, place, and manner regulations? There are some places that have said, yes, you can have a permit to speak in a public forum, but you may not bring your arms, just like you may not do it at night with amplified sound. That's one possibility. Do is it the case that carrying arms constitute expressive behavior, expression that is part of the free speech itself and should be protected as part of that speech? What evidence of past action like that in Charlottesville would be required to argue either that the prohibition on arms is a legitimate content-neutral time, place, and manner regulation or transforms what one might think of as expressive conduct that the arms are part of the message that you are offering into prohibitable and dangerous conduct? that is no longer constitutionally protected. It has long been the case, and this is something I talk about in my second book, that identifying the line between protectable speech and prohibitable conduct has always been tricky. It has always been hard to figure out what is dangerous and what is not. And there are moments in the past that we look at now and we say things that we thought were dangerous we shouldn't have thought were dangerous or things that we didn't think were dangerous were. So that line is always moving and it's a tricky one uh, and I think that there are questions. And so the fact that we are now thinking together about the First Amendment and the Second Amendment, these are new questions that legal scholars are only just beginning to tackle 
Uh, and I think we'll have to figure out where that line is once again in this new context. The second legal question is how do we, as a diverse nation, a diverse university, within each of our various own uh, communities and institutions and organizations, how do we have true dialogue across our differences? One of the most important questions that I think we will deal with as a university and other universities are dealing with as well is how do we escape the recent and, in my view, completely false dichotomy between freedom of speech on the one hand and freedom from offense on the other. There is a caricature of the vigorous defense of free speech as now being associated only with conservative politics. That's a real irony, I think, as a historian, given the origins of free speech in this country, uh, which came from aspiring free speakers like communists, anarchists, workers, civil rights activists, right? That's, the, that's where the history comes from. So there, there is uh, pitted against this caricature that free speech only belongs uh, to conservatives. There's pitted against this the caricature of liberals unwilling to hear that with which they disagree. And in my view, both sides of this dichotomy are overdrawn, and the dichotomy is false. To insist on free speech does not mean that one has to trample on the humanity of others. And to insist on mutual respect does not mean that one has to stifle free speech. In part, and I say this as a lawyer, in part, our efforts to navigate these questions actually requires acknowledging the limits of free speech law, the limits of the law. The entitlement to free speech, the legal entitlement to free speech is crucial, but the law cannot and does not answer every question. Having a right to do something does not tell us when we might prudently decide not to exercise it to its fullest, when other values might shape how we exercise that right and where. I'm thinking about something like free speech law as opposed to a free speech ethics or free speech norms. I'm not talking about free speech codes that tell people that they can't do anything or regulations that come from above. I'm talking about exercising rights within a community, about the relationship between law and social norms, about people who interact with one another, for ultimately it is people who exercise rights. And what is allowed by law and what is expected of a member of a community are not always the same thing. So the example that I think about is uh, many of us, I think, probably hear our parents in this room. I have two children, uh, and we bring our child to the park, and our child brings a toy to the sandbox. Our child owns that toy. We own that toy. We have complete property ownership over that toy. We have dominion over that toy. We will take that toy and bring it home. And yet I guarantee you, every one of, this, of us in this room, when our child goes into the sandbox, what do we say? Share the toy. Don't be mean. Share the toy. It's your toy. You own the toy. You have the right to stand on your rights of ownership of that toy. But, but don't do it that way, right? You're going to take it home. It's still going to be your toy but share it. So I think about that all the time. I think about that in the context of the university and in the context 
of the law school. And I think that this university and my law school are ideally situated to how to move past this dichotomy because of the values I talked about earlier, values that we live every day, values that are fundamentally opposed to hate, violence, and exclusion. At our core, we are committed to those values, and we are committed to being a real community. And when you're in a real community, you don't say hateful, mean, intimidating, threatening things to one another. That doesn't mean you always agree. In fact, we don't always agree. And one of the beautiful things about this university and my law school is the real and true diversity of opinion across the political and ideological spectrum. That is something to be celebrated. And when you see it in combination with commitment to a real community, that's how you have dialogue. We can all imagine homogeneous communities where everyone agrees and it's all hunky-dory. And we all know of communities of real ideological pluralism and political pluralism that are balkanized and fractious. But when you combine a commitment to support and belonging and community with real ideological diversity and pluralism, you get true dialogue. And that is what I think we do here at the University of Virginia when we are at our best. It is what we aspire to do every day. And I think we can really lead this country country in thinking about those questions and showing how to do that. So as I say, it doesn't mean that we always agree. It doesn't mean that we don't hear things that challenge our views or make us uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that it's always easy to speak in these registers or always easy to hear what we don't necessarily agree with. But we do routinely Always, we tailor our speech, our behavior, for the context in which we offer it. On the most mundane levels, you bump into someone and you say, excuse me, right? When these issues go to the core of our identities, our personhood, our deepest values and beliefs, we must do the same. So I think UVA Law School and UVA as a university are the leaders on these questions. We test ideas, we teach our students critical thinking, we are all about persuasion and argument and listening and speaking, and ultimately I think we can provide a model not only within our community but for the nation as a whole. My third and final legal question is what new light do these events shed on current legal doctrine requiring race and racial inequality. This raises questions about our constitutional equal protection doctrine that has arisen over the last several decades. So the 14th Amendment of the Constitution declares that no person uh, uh, shall uh, be denied the equal protection of the laws. And over the last number of decades, we have come to have the belief as a society, and this belief has been reflected in the law, that the civil rights movement had largely ended overt white supremacy, that all Americans were now largely on an equal playing field and agreed in the basic humanity and equality of all. It's not that we were finished. It's not that everything was done, but at least the legal work seemed to a lot of people to be done. There was no longer legal segregation. We had tried to eliminate and had succeeded in eliminating legal discrimination. So what remained to be done was beyond the ken of the law. I'm not sure everyone agreed with that then, but it was certainly a dominant view. Uh, but I think after the events of August 11th and 12th, I think that's a there's been a challenge to that view. There's long been uh, in the, the legal doctrine a tension between what is called anti-discrimination 
doctrine and anti-subordination ideas. So anti-discrimination says the government should not think or talk about race or intervene in race at all. The government should be neutral. And anti-subordination doctrine says the world is not neutral. And if the government remains neutral in an unequal world, it is perpetuating inequality. The anti-discrimination doctrine has been the one that has been more dominant for the last several decades. And I think there's a question now about what kinds of steps the government needs to take to intervene. Are there new steps that should be taken in light of the newly apparent severity of the threat to, the real, uh, to real equality? And I think it's far clearer today than it was to many uh, before August that the last legal, the, the, the last 50 years of legal and social changes have been transformative, but perhaps they haven't been as thoroughgoing as many people had surmised. And so we have to ask anew, what role should the law play? What role has the law played in bringing us to this moment? And what role can it and must it play in moving us forward once again? So the final part, I had two institutional responses as the chair of the working group and dean of the law school, and I have two academic responses, one uh, as a lawyer and a constitutional law scholar and teacher, and this final part is as a civil rights historian. We had a panel about these events at the law school a few weeks ago. Maybe some of you were there. We talked about the various academic uh, understandings and, uh, and questions that came out of these events, and I was struck by some of the panelists who referred to the white supremacists and neo-Nazis as quote-unquote unpopular minorities. And in the time I study as a historian in the 1950s and 1960s, it was the civil rights activists who were the unpopular minorities. And it was the white supremacists, though they weren't all violent and armed, who were the majority. So as I heard that phrase, I was really gratified to think that that has flipped that the white supremacists are now an unpopular minority, and the civil rights activists and ideas of equality are those shared by the dominant majority. And I'm gratified to think that even a politically fractured Congress could unanimously denounce white supremacy in the wake of August 11th. But at the same time, it worries me. Because I recall when civil rights activists were the unpopular minority, and I know that massive change can happen, and that unpopular minorities can become dominant majorities. And that does not always happen for the better. And I think that is why Congress felt the need to denounce what happened here on August 11th and 12th. I think that's why so many individuals, institutions, groups, organizations across the political spectrum have dissented from these threats. The nation has, in large part, dissented. And so I hope, if I don't quite predict, that when the story of the march of civil rights is told, the long, long march of civil rights is told, what happened in Charlottesville will be seen as a late and ultimately futile reaction to the successes of the freedom struggles of the last 50 years. As I said, those successes are far from complete. And August 11th and 12th were a violent and disturbing reminder that progress is all too often accompanied by reaction. It makes me think that Charlottesville, Charlottesville, what people now say, Charlottesville, has to be not just a lament, but a call to arms and a call to action. I don't mean arms in the literal sense. <laughs> so I want to end with a quote from Thurgood Marshall, 
who was the architect of the Brown versus Board of Education litigation, the first African-American Supreme Court justice. He said the following, I wish I could say that racism and prejudice were only distant memories. We must dissent from the indifference. We must dissent from the apathy. We must dissent from the fear, the hatred, and the mistrust. We must dissent because America can do better, because America has no choice but to do better. Thank you. I'm um, questioning the legal uh, aspect during those days, 8-11 and 8-12, because I felt that um, there could have been actions before that. There were preparations, in other words, where we could have navigated where people rallied. And I felt like there was no legal stance on that. And I just want to know if in the future, and we have people that come in and say they want to rally with guns or whatever, isn't there a way to like contain it? Like put it at U-Haul and say, okay, have a rally there. Invite your friends. And it, it, I feel like in Charlottesville there is no place for that. Uh, for the abolitionists, you know, they used to go out in the street or whatever what are we doing here in Charlottesville, and how legally can we contain it? Can I ask a, a, a clarifying question? Do you mean in the city or on grounds? Actually, there should be a connection by now, and there should be some legal uh, place for both the students and uh, guests. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, the university uh, uh, makes the policies for the university grounds, and the city makes the policies for the city. So um, it's not, I, I, I agree that um, collaboration is important between the city and the university, but they are different entities making different rules. So um, in the city, uh, I can speak briefly to that, um, but I'll talk more about uh, the university. The city does have a permitting process uh, that was used uh, uh, for Emancipation Park. The city then did try to move it. Uh, and there was a lawsuit that ensued, and the city was told they couldn't move it uh, out to McIntyre Park. So, um, uh, so there, there are all kinds of legal questions uh, involved there. At the university, uh, we do have some policies in place about uh, the use of various spaces, um, but mostly indoor spaces. And the university has a long, robust uh, commitment to free speech on grounds, uh, and, uh, and I think that's incredibly important. I think the university is still committed to that, uh, but the question the university is asking now when I say I have my uh, First Amendment experts on my faculty uh, writing memos about this and talking with the general counsel's office is, are there ways to provide permitting that will still enable and facilitate robust free speech while enabling the university to um, identify where and when such speech happens uh, in a more concerted way? So those are the questions. Those are, you, you've stated the question exactly. Th those are the questions that are on the table, uh, and the university is very much aware uh, of the values on, on both sides and trying to figure out how to navigate through that. Dean, thank you for your comments today. Uh, did your group uh, at all look at the role of the Charlottesville City Council over the past year and a half or so um, in the events uh, that culminated uh, on August 11th and 12th? And if so, 
uh, did you uh, have any uh, thoughts with regard to the way that that body uh, dealt with um, respect for the rule of law? And if your group didn't do that, do you as a perceptive 15-year member of the community have any thoughts in that regard? <laughs> So our group, thank you, our group did not uh, do that. Our group was really focused on the university's response on August 11th. Uh, there is uh, a graduate of the law school, Tim Hafey, former uh, U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia, who has been hired by the city uh, to uh, assess the city's uh, response. I think he's largely looking at law enforcement, uh, though it, it is possible that the, the city council will um, uh, uh, play a role uh, in that assessment as well. <clears throat> yes, hi. My name is Emily Grosensky. I am one of the people that was at the statue that night. I am the complainant in the Christopher Cantwell case. And in terms of what happened on the 11th here at UVA, I was one of the people that made the decision to release the information about the event that was about to occur. Uh, UVA investigators have asked activists to do almost all of the investigative work to hold the people at the statue accountable. And I have reached out to you specifically for assistance with this and yet have not heard a response. In terms of people who know about what happened, I may know more than anybody else in the world about the events of August 11th and 12th. Can you explain how the working group has not reached out to the community members who were there defending the students? We actually, uh, I, I thank you for uh, your defense of the students. Uh, and uh, and I, I would like to hear from you. I. I have been working through my multiple inboxes, which have thousands and thousands of emails. Uh, I have spoken to a number of people who were there that night uh, and gathered a lot of information about it. Um, but I, I would like to hear from you, and I apologize for the delay. Uh, so um, I'm glad uh, as soon as you stood up and said your name, uh, I was glad to uh, be able to put a face to the name. And uh, I look forward to us having a chance to talk. So, excuse me. So, clearly, the events of of the 11th and 12th were deplorable. But is the charge of your group to also uh, ensure that uh, people who have statements to make that are even invited by the university to come on campus are allowed their ability to? speak their mind without being interrupted or shouted down by, organ uh, by students in the community? So when you think about free speech, right, and the kinds of free speech rules we're creating, uh, they will, uh, you know, there are a number of different aspects to it, but there are uh, uh, free speech concerns not only about the kind of event that happened on August 11th, but uh, the invitation of speakers like we just saw at the University of Florida, for example, with Richard Spencer. That's what I imagine you have in mind. Uh, so the experts that I have asked to write about this are uh, uh, thinking about that as well, uh, and the university is definitely thinking about that as well. Um, it is is uh, the university's commitment to free speech, that people should be allowed to speak uh, and people should be allowed to listen to them. So um, figuring out how to, how to make that happen in practice, that's what universities all over the country are trying to do, and, uh, and that is very much a priority for us. Thank you. Uh, you made me think about the First Amendment rights. And I was wondering to what extent the First Amendment prevents us from having any kind of 
legal protection from distortion of truth when it's intended to harm. So the First Amendment itself, I would say, does not. The First Amendment is premised on the idea, there are a number of different kind of animating principles that people have described. Uh, well, let me step back from that. I, I think as a general matter, the answer would be no. Uh, the First Amendment, one of the main ideas that um, that is used to describe the, the First Amendment is that we are a marketplace of ideas, right? And the, uh, the response to false speech or bad speech or hateful speech is more speech. Uh, and, you know, there are competing uh, ideas of the First Amendment. There are ideas of the First Amendment that uh, the reason we have free speech is is to um, uh, enhance our democracy and to make our democracy possible. There may be, if you follow that line of thought, it's not something I've, I've thought about a lot, but there may be, if you follow that line of thought, um, uh, justifications if you really think that speech is about democracy false speech isn't going to enhance democracy, and so maybe you get to a place. But I think um, for the most part, I would say, uh, and this is just off the top of my head, this is not a sustained thoughts that I've been uh, thinking about, but um, I, I think one would say it's not a matter necessarily of the First Amendment, whether false speech um, uh, uh, how to handle the problem of false speech, I would say it's probably uh, a problem that comes out extra-legally uh, in, through politics, through the speech itself. Um, but I will think more uh, about uh, the question of whether uh, you're animated by democratic dialogue, um, then, then maybe there isn't a place for false speech. But as a general matter, um, th that, wouldn't be, that wouldn't be the case. Hi, thanks very much for your remarks and perspectives. One of the things that I haven't heard as much about that I thought maybe deserves a little more airing is about the presence and participation of militias on the 12th. And what are your kind of legal, I guess, and broader perspectives about what the parameters are around uh, militia organizations in this kind of event? So there is a lawsuit that has been filed, uh, uh, that was filed, I think, uh, a week ago, around a week ago, uh, that is um, uh, suing those militias for uh, declaratory and injunctive relief uh, on uh, the basis of both the Virginia Constitution and a statute in Virginia uh, that require all uh, militias and paramilitary organizations to uh, be under the civil control, uh, under the control of the civil authorities. Uh, and so the argument, I don't know whether it will succeed or not, but the argument of this lawsuit is that these paramilitary and militia organizations are not under the civil authority and therefore are acting in violation of the law. Uh, you know, it just got filed. Uh, I don't know uh, where it will lead, what courts will do with it, but uh, there are certainly uh, some lawyers out there who do think uh, that that's something that is uh, is a real pose a real legal and constitutional problem we've got time for one last question Dean in your presentation Where? I heard I'm back here okay thank you <laughs> I heard the words community and communication more than once um, I believe that in the current uh, technological world in which most of us live that uh, those concepts are going to be harder and harder to come by because everyone's going down their own little rabbit hole on their own little device and not seeking out other voices. Mm -hmm. I was very interested in the report that was in the Times-Dispatch about the rally in Richmond recently which did not explode because there was such a huge police presence. I felt like if for the 
only time in my life that uh, I was living in a police state as I traveled down Monument Avenue. I believe that the easier it is to communicate, the harder it is to communicate. I'm wondering how can we have these dialogues, these, these uh, communication experiences, if everyone is down their little rabbit hole. Uh, I like that. Uh, I like that line. The easier it is to communicate, the harder it is to communicate. That's a good line. Uh, so, um, at the law school, there's a new organization. Uh, it is a student and faculty combined organization, and it's called Common Law Grounds. And on Friday, we had a conference on exactly this question. It was called "Of Bubbles and Biases," and it was all about democratic dialogue. Uh, and they invited in uh, journalists from across the political spectrum to speak to the audience and to one another, as well as experts on the media. Um, but there are two parts of the day that I actually think are, are the most important. One was they broke up into uh, tables and groups, and they each read uh, accounts of the same incident in different media forms from different media sources, and then they had conversations about what they learned, about what the facts were, right? Because one of the questions, and this goes to the uh, prior question as well, how do you have common dialogue when you don't even share the same facts, right? Because we're all so balkanized in social media that we get facts that confirm only what we believe. Um, so this was an attempt to actually experience what it would be like to have conversations when uh, your sources are coming from different places. And then they have created a challenge uh, that, uh, that they are hoping will go viral. So here's your opportunity to do something uh, about this, which is a challenge to read a media source and I can't remember if it's once a day or once a week. I'm going to go with once a week. To read a media source that is not your usual media sources, right? And then to talk to people about it. So uh, I don't say this is going to fix everything, um, but I do think one of the things about technology is new problems arise before we recognize what they are, right? And so technology always produces new benefits and new problems, as your pithy statement shows. Um, and this is one that we are now aware of and we're hyper aware of that in an age where there is information all over the place, where every individual gets to curate the information uh, that he or she uh, or they receive, that uh, uh, all of a sudden, we are in a place where people are living in bubbles with their biases, and it's very hard to communicate, both because of the facts that we get and because we are not in interpersonal communication uh, with one another. And so I think this is a moment, uh, I'm sure if a media studies person were standing here instead of me, that would be the question that they asked for this talk, right? Um, and I think we are in that moment, and we are recognizing the nature of this problem. We've had technological leaps before, that led to uh, major conflicts, uh, and we figured out how to get past them. So uh, I'm always an optimist. I think we will learn from this as well. But I think it does take concerted efforts on all of our parts uh, to have interactions, to have dialogue, to talk to people who don't agree with us, to create institutions like Common Law Grounds that will enable us to do so. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you again to...